Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Fond Farewells Edition. I'm Shane Harris of The Daily Beast, joined here in our sunny, uh, soon to be getting very hot, Washington, D.C. studio with my good friend, as always, Ben Wittes. Hi, Ben. Hey. Ben just gave me some habanero peppers that he had growing in the window. I grow, I have lots of plants. This place looks like a jungle. Yeah, well, especially because it's <laughs> there got are the more mask. plants here than last week. Yeah, there are, and some of them are hanging. I've been growing a lot of plants, and I figured since it was like jungle, we should have a habanero plant. And we do, and it's been bearing a lot of fruit, so I gave some to our our, our host. What, are these like the really, really hot ones? Yeah. So what do I do with them? Uh, Cook be very, very carefully. Very carefully. Wear gloves. Yeah, and do not touch your eyes. I've done that them. before, actually, with a jalapeno pepper, and you will feel it for days. Yeah, because you know, this is a security threat that is not discussed enough in national security. It's really not. Is habanero on your fingers. It's such a simple way to keep yourself safe. That's it. We're giving you tips you can yeah, use. Yeah, tips here. you can use, you can use on rational security. Uh, you may have also heard that other voice here. Uh, not our usual. Uh, uh, Tamara Wittes, who's off in where? She is in Beijing. She's um, in Beijing, we can say this. She's, okay. she's in Beijing, she's um, where, uh, as, as you will learn if you listen to the Lawfare podcast this week, uh, Brookings will not send you with a normal phone and, a, and your regular laptop, so... Uh, to all of our People's Liberation Army listeners who might think about going after uh, my dear wife's uh, signal in, in Beijing. We, we're, she's on burners, Don't man. waste your time, Don't waste man. your time. It's just not worth the it. The Brookings Institution has a long history with you people. Yeah. <laughs> it has learned. But <laughs> well, we are joined by our good friend from Lawfare, Quinta Teresa. Hello, Quinta. Hello. Nice How to be you? here. Thank you very much for, for joining us on the show today. Always a pleasure. It's good to have you back. Um, so this week on the podcast, a new leak shows us more about the inner workings of drone strikes. Is this big news or just really stuff for national security geeks? We're going to talk about that. FBI Director Jim Comey concedes defeat in the encryption wars and Obama's moral muse. Plus, in Object Lessons, we're going to explain our title. It's actually a sad title, but we'll get to that a little bit. Yeah, the Farewells Edition. Farewells Edition. Uh, But first, let's kick it off with our wordplay. I'm actually going to go first on this one. Uh, So The Intercept, uh, which, of course, is the publication sort of by Glenn Greenwald and others uh, following the Edward Snowden leaks, uh, has a a big, uh, very splashy multimedia presentation uh, series of articles out today based on a number of, um, I'll say, very interesting documents about the inner workings of drone strikes, particularly in Yemen and Somalia. I'm not sure there's a really big news headline, per se, out of this. I mean, I think there's it's not revealing anything about a program specifically or the acts of drone strikes that I don't think we really knew. 
Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it was certainly based on primary source material, which, by the way, there's another leaker out there in the firmament, I guess. But what I thought was really interesting about this, um, that I think will be of interest to our readers, too, is there's a couple of reports that were put together by um, essentially like a joint military intelligence task force that was looking specifically at the strikes as they were being conducted in Somalia and in Yemen. So separate from anything that goes on in Iraq and Afghanistan. And there were some really interesting takeaways about this that I kind of wanted to bounce around with you guys. Um, one was that it turns out in the overwhelming number of these cases, and we should say this document covers a period of 2012 to 2013, roughly, um, there was one source of information for finding the individual target in the find, fix, finish three-part cycle, and it was signals intelligence, and apparently almost always a phone number or the serial number of a SIM card. So signals intelligence playing a very big role in finding people. And once the drone could actually get on them, fixing their location was one thing, but then finishing them off, it turns out, much harder than you might think. Because in many of these cases, they were not able to identify uh, the physical characteristics or have other source information to positively identify with the quote-unquote near-certainty standard that they needed for these individual strikes. So... Kind of an inside look at the program as being heavily reliant on signals intelligence, usually just one source of that intelligence. And then when you get on top of the guy that you want to drone, even with high-definition video, uh, where you can actually see the physical characteristics, they talk about this, of the individual target, not always a given um, that you will be able to, in fact, take out your target. Uh, They talked about having a quote-unquote critical shortfall of capabilities in terms of finding and positively identifying these people, which sort of goes against, I think, the notion, at least the popular notion, that there are always these just multiple forms of intelligence feeding into one kind of big nerve center, and that once you're on top of the guy, you just watch him and wait for the moment to strike. It sounds like it's actually a much more fragmented process, at least in Somalia uh, and in Yemen. And could I know you still went through the documents too, but I wonder what you think about that and kind of other impressions that you had about this kind of inner look at the drone program? Yeah, I mean, I was interested by the the discussion of the phenomena of blinking, I think they called blinking, it. Blinking, right. right. Right, Where, which is sort of a fun metaphor, pun thing going on there, because there's this image of, you know, the drone program as the panopticon and the all-seeing right. eye that is always watching you. Um, and yet they're also struggling with this thing that they call blinking, which is where the drone has to move after a certain amount of time and the image sort of flickers in and out. And so you can't actually see everything. So essentially the all-seeing eye is not, in fact, all-seeing. Or the drone that's on top of somebody watching him has to go off and fire a missile at somebody right. else. <laughs> so like the killing right. priority over the finding sometimes. But can I back up and mm-hmm. for a minute and say, like, what, like, what's the thesis? So the Intercept is not writing here in order to praise uh, U.S. targeting practices. So what does the Intercept make of a situation in which the horrid drone program pinpoints a terrorist, uh, because you know, using SIGINT, identifies the person holding this phone, and then watches him, and in a high percentage of the cases, doesn't take him out, because they can't validate identity based on visuals. Do they, what do they make of that? That actually seems quite dissonant with 
with why you would think the intercept would be interested in, I, I, in this. I don't know that in the uh, the the articles accompanying these documents there was a whole lot of discussion of that. Uh, I think I'm pointing out things and finding that I didn't see so much ah, in the I main see. story. And and so but, so let's like let's. Uh, I'm interested, Shane, in uh, what the intercept, how the intercept read this sure. document, sure. these documents. And to what extent you think that that was consistent with what the documents, in, yeah. it, as you read them, actually said? Well, I think first we should, you know, we talk about at the top, I mean, the, the, the lead story on this starts off by calling the drone program an assassination program, which I think at the outset kind of gives you a sense of where it's going to come from. It's, look, I'm not objecting, you know, the intercept has its take and that's fine, but you're, you're starting with immediately with this, uh, you know, provocative kind of declarative statement that I think probably many of our listeners will look at and say, stop, I'm not even going anywhere forward if you're going to call it that. But putting the question of calling it an assassination program aside, the, the main points that they're bringing up... By, by the way, I have no problem with calling it an assassination. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, why not? Really? Well, let's well, on that for a second. So, so number one, um, I think that uh, the word assassination has multiple uses, multiple meanings, uh, one of those meanings is the meaning that the U.S. government uh, uses in a, in a legal context where we ban assassinations. The executive order bans assassinations. Right. It does not define them. Right. And the government's position, with which I agree, is that the word assassination, uh, it's only an assassination if it's an unlawful killing, and killing a combatant in an armed conflict is not an unlawful killing, therefore it's not an assassination. That's the U.S. government's position, and I agree with it. There's another use of the word assassination, which if you look it up in a dictionary, it will contain. It's a more colloquial use, which is just the, uh, you know, killing of an individual for political reasons. Um, people are being killed for political reasons. They're being killed for security reasons. Well, but there's also, the term assassination implies that, you know, you're going at, there's one guy, like, you're going to, I'm Gabriel Princip, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to track down right. Franz Ferdinand. I'm not and just going to drop a bomb. Generally, it's head of state or head of, you know, Right, but, but the thing in the intercept story, the angle that they really end up pushing is, look how many, you know, people who are not, Senior right. Al Qaeda, senior Taliban, senior really whoever leaders. Right. So, yeah. in fact, like character, if it's an assassination program, according to the Intercept, it is a really badly done right. assassination program. Right. Because they're killing program. lots of people Which that they're they not, spe- with, by the way. not right. specifically targeting. Right. But, but my, my point is, like, if lots of people use the word assassination to refer in a much in a in a sort of colloquial sense to it, individualized killing, right? And I. I think the U.S. government, the degree to which we bristle at that um, at, when we're speaking in a non-legal context is largely silly. And, um, and I'm, you know, if, if Jeremy Scahill wants to call it assassinations, I don't really see why that answers the question unless he's speaking in a legal context, in which case he's wrong. Right, and I don't think he's at that. I, I mean, in my read of the articles, I don't see anywhere saying it is an illegal program because it is an assassination program. Right, then it becomes redundant, uh, sort of cir- cir- a circular right. argument. It's, it's the, an assassination but, because it's Ill- because it's illegal, and it's illegal because it's an assassination, and that's just silly. But I, you know, I think if you know okay. people, wa- I'll, I'll never nitpick over with somebody who's speaking colloquially and so calls we, we targeted have, killings. We have found the point upon which you and Jeremy Scahill and Glenn Greenwald agree. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, well, except that I wouldn't describe it that way myself. Okay. I just, I you just, just don't mind it's just beneath my does. dignity to argue with people about it. <laughs> yeah, right. But to your question about <laughs> the thrust of the article, I mean, look, it was it, exploring in some greater depth with some detail aspects of the drone program and controversial ones that are well known and that are very much at the heart of why people often disagree with the drone program, such as. Um, a large number of civilian casualties, what appears to be in some cases the indiscriminate nature of drone strikes relying on not great intelligence in all cases. Um, do I think, you know, paint a picture of, in some cases, a program that feels at times that it is, you know, has come off the rails a bit. And I say at times because they're, we're looking at, with, as was the case with so many of these leaked documents, you're looking at snapshots in time or pieces of a program something that happened in Afghanistan, something that happened in Somalia and Yemen. Um, it actually got me thinking a bit about um, you know, Scott Shane's book, Objective Troy, and Ben, you did an interview with Scott, uh, I guess it was last week on the Lawfare podcast. And, you know, and there's, there's the sense that you get from Scott's book, I think, that, this is, that the drone program is both this tightly bound, highly regulated, sort of legally architected program, and yet at the same time feels like it has gone too far or expanded and gotten out of control in some cases. I mean, sort of summarizing what Scott told you, and you get the feeling from the Intercept story that that is also true, that there are, in fact, all these checks and balances and procedures and processes in place, but they're not always working, and that they're highly dependent upon the quality of the intelligence that you're getting in the first place. And which is why I sort of zeroed in on this aspect that they didn't play up so much, was that by the programs, by the managers of the programs, anywhere the auditors own admission, there are many cases, it appears, where they get on a target and they do not take the shot because they cannot identify him. Which, you know, it's not to say that the overwhelming number of cases are like that. We're seeing one snapshot. But that was very interesting. So should Ryan write a lawfare post? The problem with the drone program colon, its operators are a bunch of wusses. <laughs> There's too many lawyers. <laughs> too many lawyers. <laughs> Take the shot, damn it. Um, <laughs> you might get some response to that. Yeah, just, just, but just throwing that out there. One, one of the things you put on this that I thought was very interesting is the, the, the there were actually two reports of this kind of an audit of the program in Somalia and in Yemen. And among, a number of things they were pointing out was, look, these are very long-haul flights that we're on. Uh, if we positioned more drones off of naval vessels, we could get shorter distances. You know, That might help the problem. Uh, because as uh, Quinto was saying, they're loitering over these targets, and there's only so many drones, and you got to manage for time and for distance and everything. But they said this critical shortfall of capabilities in terms of finding and positively identifying these high-value targets. There were two big recommendations. One, hack more. So conduct more computer network operations, which is hacking, to find more information about these guys. Two, capture more people instead of killing them. So, okay, how did the Intercept respond to the hack more? I didn't see a lot of that discussion. Yeah, they didn't really pick, that wasn't the, the line they were taking. To because, like I mean, if I were writing the story, I'm finding many other interesting things that didn't surface in the articles. Because, again, I think that would be sort of dissonant with the whole reason for the Intercept's existence. Well, but what's interesting is, I mean, and this is maybe like a place where I'm surprised that they didn't seize on that, because, I mean, here you're seeing, and you know, I've written about this, and Jeremy has written about this, too, the ways in which the drone operations and special operations have started to merge right. with computer network operations and hacking, and we saw it really first in Iraq, which I wrote about in that war, and he's written some about this too, 
this is a great example of where these two complexes are coming together. So maybe Jeremy Scahill needs to join us on the Rational Security Podcast sure. to discuss his article and the things he didn't focus on in those documents. And there may be in other parts of the, like, a dozen articles, by the way, that came with this package. But uh, I, I wasn't seeing this emphasized in many of the leads. And there are other things that we don't have time to talk about. There weren't, it was so well. But, yeah, I, in general, I, I didn't get a huge big news buzz out of it, but there was stuff that I found terribly interesting about the inner workings of the program. So, all right, so uh, moving on, FBI Director Jim Comey has cried uncle in the crypto wars, Ben. He sure has. Well, I'm not sure he cried uncle so much as that um, uncle was cried for him by uh, Barack Obama. Uh, So, uh, as many readers know by now, the administration... Uh, this knockdown, dragout fight between the FBI and that powerhouse interagency player, the Apple Corporation, uh, which you didn't know was a federal government entity, but actually, you know, has a seat at the interagency table. Holy um, Apple, you know, won this one, and uh, uh, the other day, Comey was, uh, you know, up on the hill and. Um, said the following about uh, the question of legislation for encryption, which was, um, our tools are only those the American people give us through you. That's Congress. And I think my job is to tell folks when one of the tools you're counting on to use to protect you is not working so much anymore, we have to talk about that. And so there's been a lot of conversation, very productive, uh, the administration has decided not to seek a legislative remedy now, but that it makes sense to continue the conversations that we're having that are very productive. Because here's one thing, people in industry are good folks. They share those same values, and they are working with us to figure out how we could solve this problem. That is about as close as you get to the head of a federal agency saying, I lose. Uh, and uh, my opponents have won this battle. So here's, I think, the only thing that Comey and company have won in the uh, latest encryption uh, headbutts uh, on the Hill, which started, you know, uh, sorry, within the administration, which started a year ago when Comey came to Brookings and gave a speech on the subject uh, in a conversation actually with me. Um, and I think the only thing that they've won is they've gotten industry's attention. Um, and they got the administration to um, not disclaim the possibility of ever seeking legislation, um, but really m- merely to say that it wasn't seeking legislation in parentheses now. And that does preserve the ability maybe to fight another day uh, but I think the big lesson of this episode is, you know, how how strong the tech community is um, and also how divided the federal government is, that a lot of the State Department and the Commerce Department really agrees with the tech industry on the importance of encryption, uh, uh, free encryption, uh, um, you know, to... Uh, cybersecurity to protecting uh, U.S. business overseas, 
uh, and to protecting democracy activists in repressive countries. And I think that coalition uh, has proved to be, you know, quite strong. Um, and that's a big, uh, going to be a big challenge for the FBI in, in, in the next few years. Do you think he knew this is where it was going to end up when he picked this fight? I don't think the prospects were ever very good that there would, the administration was going to propose legislation uh, and Congress was going to pass it. I don't think anybody in the government believed that, including at the senior levels of the FBI. I think what what's a closer question in my mind is whether they believed that if you talked about the possibility, the need for a solution, maybe a legislative solution, maybe some other kind of solution, there would be pressure that would build on the companies to accommodate the Bureau's needs on a sort of voluntary or, or uh, bilaterally negotiated basis. And I think, you know, Comey's testimony is uh, sort of ambiguous about how... Um, how clear, you know, to what extent that has developed. But I think it's certainly fair to say that it has developed less um, uh, robustly than I suspect Comey might have hoped a year ago. Um, and he never really, I mean, you make the point that, you know, maybe people in the administration never thought they were going to get to the point where they proposed a law or a solution and Congress would pass it. But <clears throat> I think he took some criticism for not coming out and proposing some solution to the problem and just sort of throwing it out there. Okay, so, I mean, that... But he did open a dialogue, but I wonder if in the end that that was strategically not a smart move because it gave so much ammunition to his critics to say, this is, they, you know, they want back doors and they're proposing these terrible ideas, when he wasn't actually proposing a well, precise solution. He was not actually proposing anything. Um, and the reason that was the case, frankly, was that the administration, you know, either proposes legislation or it doesn't, he was never authorized to make a legislative proposal. Right. Um, and so all he could do, and he certainly, I think, was not discouraged by the administration from doing this, is stating very frankly what the operational problems that they were having was and saying that there needs to be a solution. And the hope there, and he's been very public about this, the hope there was to spark a dialogue and a set of conversations. Now, in his testimony, he did say, uh, this is a quote, we're having increasingly productive, frankly, conversations with industry because I think in part this ISIL threat focused everyone's minds and understood that we're just not making this up, right? There really is a conflict between values we all care about, safety and security and public safety. And so industry is not a monolith. There's a lot of different services and products being provided. And what I've found is they are all people who care about the future the safety of the of America, and also about priorities and civil liberties. So I think, I mean, I think he's, you know, you hear that from industry too, that there have been a lot of conversations about, you know, what areas there, there are open to work on together. A lot of the words metadata always come up when you hear that sort of like, what what are the areas where they can really be more productive relations between the Bureau and industry. Um, but I think, you know, there may be a lot of audio communications and, you know, substantive communications that really are going dark. And, you know, that's just going to happen. And, you know, 
interesting question whether after some really bad thing happens, I don't necessarily mean a child, a, a bomb, but you know, some sort of child exploitation case or whatever, that people are going to, you know, have a revisit this question. But uh, I think for now, at least, you know, it, it's a pretty decisive win for industry and um, and for those components of the administration, including, you know, those who the sort of, you know, who who want who actively want things to go dark for cybersecurity reasons uh, against the kind of law enforcement interests and, and, to a lesser extent, the intelligence community. And I think that Comey, you know, in a sense, there was, a, there was a smart strategic move here to make this so public because if he truly believes it's a problem, and I think he does truly believe it's a problem, he's not making it up, as he said, He's put people on notice. Right. So it's not as if when there is a crisis or, or a catastrophe because of this inability to decrypt a communication, that somebody can come back and say, well, why didn't you tell us this? He'll be able to say, I told you. Right. Well, so my question is, like, did it have to end? Like, was there another way this could have ended? Or was or were we always going to end up at this point? I don't, I feel like we always were because I feel like the two sides were so far apart. And the discussion very much came down to this issue of, not unlike it was in the mid-1990s, that if you sort of put these keys in escrow or try to create these you know, sets of backdoors that only the government can have, that you will never be able to build a system that is not fundamentally weakened and puts everyone at risk because of that. And that just seemed like there was, it just seemed like the, that the philosophical divide was one thing and the technical divide was vast, and there was such a lack of trust on both sides, post-Snowden, industry and law enforcement. Right. He may have helped repair that, some of that, though. Well, I think, you know... And maybe so, by hmm. conceding, for now, has kind of helped everyone maybe inch a little closer to the table. Oh, that's... So maybe this was the master plan it the whole been. time. Well, but I, thought, but I think there's another really important dimension of this episode, which is that this was the first time that, in a very long time, that the chief security voice in the public domain was not talking about NSA issues, yeah. was talking mm -hmm. about basic, routine law enforcement cases. Um, and, you know, NSA, for a variety of reasons that they won't talk about, but you can kind of figure out what they are, is much less concerned about this issue than the FBI is. And um, the reason is basically that they can hack phones in mass, and, you know, when they're operating overseas... You know, if they find a vulnerability or an exploit, they can use it a lot and pretty pervasively. And the Bureau can't hack your phone without a warrant. Right. You know, and it has to do it on a very individualized basis. And so the NSA also has much better encryption breaking than any other component of government has. So they steal the keys if they have to. They, they have a lot of tools that you would not want the FBI using domestically. And so it just, you know... It, I think the conversation has had the effect of refocusing uh, the security apparatus away from the question, or re refocusing people when they think about what government security policy is, less away, more away from NSA and toward uh, what's actually the big enchilada in U.S. persons' interactions with their government, which is, you know, the old FBI. Which might also have the effect of sort of bringing people, bringing tech and the government a little more close together following Snowden, right? Especially in that the FBI is a little cuddlier than the NSA. Yeah, yeah particularly Comey, who everybody seems to like. 
Yeah. And respect, even if they don't agree with them. Right. Okay, Quinta, you have, speaking of keys, you have found the key that unlocks the mind of the commander-in-chief, his muse. That's right. Not to be presumptuous, but I think I do. So, (laughs) my... Quinta's 23, by the way, or... 22. 22. What? (laughs) Is she allowed to be on the air? I think, well, we make the rules... My parents signed a consent form, so it's okay. So having discovered the president's moral muse at 22 years old, here's, tell us about it, Quinta. All right. So my wordplay is a 1944 rewriting of the famous Sophocles tragedy Antigone by the French playwright uh, Jean Ennui, um, which sort of takes this very classic story of Antigone, the sort of rebel youngster, standing up to her uncle who's sort of he's recently become the king he's trying to crack down on security she stands up to him and tragedy ensues um and sort of takes that and flips it on its on its head and makes crayon who's the sort of tyrannical uncle king figure into a far more sympathetic figure who seems he gives these incredible monologues about how how weary he is of kingship and how hard it is and the moral sacrifices he has to make. Antigone, you just don't understand how hard my life is. And so I have felt for a long time that Ennui's sort of rejiggered crayon can potentially give us a really interesting insight into the, dare I say it, the workings of you know the commander-in-chief's mind, particularly on the issue of drone warfare, where he's has also monologued at length about how terribly hard and burdensome and morally troubling it is to be in charge of this program. So Quinta has written a piece on lawfare, which I refer to you all, that holds up the language of Obama's speeches against the language of uh, Creon in Jean Anouy's Antigone. Uh, And uh, the parallels are, I think, very striking. And um, it's a, it's a, pretty fabulous little piece, um, and you should all go read it uh, and understand that that back during World War II in Paris, a French playwright imagined Barack Obama's agonies about the drone program. Is he Crayon or Antigone? He is Crayon. Oh, he's definitely Crayon. He has the thing. The thing is that I think Jeremy Scahill is Antigone. <laughs> oh, like, <laughs> it's totally true, though, because the thing is that there's Anui sort of sets up this contrast between the world-weary leader who, you know, knows how ugly the world is and knows what he has to do to, you know, protect his people, whether or not you disagree with that, versus Antigone, who's the, like, the young, idealistic firebrand. And Crean essentially spends the whole play saying, you know, I was like you, you don't understand what it's like to actually have, you know, responsibility. So I think, I think if we put uh, Obama and The Intercept on the stage, it's pretty clear how they line up. It sounds like they should, we should have a dramatic reading of the play with Jeremy and President Obama. <laughs> I, think, I think that, oh wow, that would be so fabulous. Jeremy Scahill as Antigone, Barack Obama as Creon in a radio production of jean Anouy's Antigone brought to you by Rational Security. We're going to happen. <laughs> totally. And Raytheon. Is, who does a really good Obama, <laughs> Obama impersonation? We should get him. Yeah, all right. He's not going to have a lot to do. After Raytheon, you should sponsor Harry's Razors. Totally. You, we want you. We want Casper. Yes. To, you know, mattress dealers. Exactly. And we want... We we'll want, do it on a Casper mattress. Is the, the stage. <laughs> Obama sitting on one Casper mattress. 
uh, Jeremy Scahill shaving with a Harry's razor <laughs> and Raytheon flying in some... A drone on top. It's like, I can't tell for sure if that's Obama. <laughs> exactly. That's definitely... All right. Reading Jean Amouy's Antigone. <laughs> okay, so let's move to object lessons. Uh, I'm going to go first. Uh, again, I listeners of the podcast know that I've become obsessed with genealogy and family records. Uh, I have a grandfather who fought in the Second World War. Uh, I found my last, I think it was last week, I had my great-grandfather's uh, World War I draft card. I have found the mother load. Okay, you have to, I, it, I could hardly contain my excitement when I learned this was true. Social media was buzzing about it. Yeah. This is the birth record of one Didymus Kinney, born to Stephen and Priscilla Kinney. Well, Stephen, yeah, Stephen and Priscilla. August 7th, 1743, in Connecticut. This is my fifth great-grandfather, so my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, who was an officer in the Continental Army in the Revolutionary War. Wow. Wow. Protecting your rational security. That's right. The <laughs> From the British. protectors, baby. <laughs> yeah. The original protectors. It also turns out that his great-great-grandfather was involved in the Salem Witch Trials. So sorry <laughs> about that part. Oops. <laughs> We're going to stop with family tree about right at 1740. That was the irrational security part of Shane's background. <laughs> Maybe there'll be more outtrick lesson next week. Protecting people from witches since the 17th century. <laughs> it's the Shane Harris family. Oh, my God. It was, this, was, this was really stunning, though. I mean, this is, it's a direct line. I mean, it's, it's not uncles, cousins. This is... Straight from the tree, baby. Right. So down you're from let's let's be clear. You're you are a direct lineal descendant of people who fought in World War Two, World War One. Well, they were drafted. The Continental, uh, uh, the Revolutionary War, right. and the war on witchcraft. Totally. <laughs> We've been waging war on something or other for about you know eight generations. But you sat out like most of the nineteenth century, though. That's true. Yeah, do you have any Civil War? Well, so... This may be War of 1812? Well, so this line of the family was from uh, New England and migrated uh, through the Midwest to Washington. I have not gotten onto Dad's side of the family, uh, which does have quite a lot of Southern heritage in it. So I think we may find in a future episode that we did have some Civil War fighters and some other interesting skeletons in the closet, I will bet you. Maybe for a future podcast. Excellent. But in the meantime... That's right. I'm a son of the revolution, America. You're welcome. Ben, your object explains our... So my object is actually not here. Um, my object is in the office two doors down from, from our little rational security studio. And it is Wells Bennett. Uh, whom we are saying farewell to at Lawfare this week. Lawfare's managing editor is leaving us. And here's the thing. We can't tell you where he's going, which should give you some idea that it's kind of interesting. Uh, we are losing Wells. We've all wept bitter tears about this. As soon as uh, we're done with this taping, we're having a little Brookings goodbye party for him. And then he's going to do go off and do something else. Um, so we're going to say goodbye, Wells. We're going to say farewells. Farewells. It's the farewells Bond edition. Farewells. Um, and, uh, yeah, but we cannot tell you where he's going. Or when he might come back. He's right. going dark. He's going dark. He's blinking out. And he can't, he's blinking you know, out. Yes. Blinking out, going dark. 
He is not Creon, however. <laughs> no. Far from it. Yeah. Has too much of a sense of humor. Yeah, he's way too funny for that. He's like the, the jester. That play doesn't have a jester. Yeah. But if it did, that would be him. If he did, he'd be the fool. Court Jester Wells. Court Jester Wells. We will miss you, Wells. All right, that brings us to the end of the show this week. I want to tell one funny story about Wells. Story yeah, I'm going to tell a funny story about oh, Wells. Okay, sure. Years ago, when we were um, thinking about bringing Wells to Brookings uh, and to be managing editor of Lafayette, we weren't sure whether how we were going to fund it. And or so, if he could read. Yeah, well, we had to figure out that he could read. Um, but we, we decided we were going to uh, do a, a sort of Kickstarter campaign because uh, Wells initially came to Brookings to cover the uh, military commission's trials. Right. Um, and so I, we had this idea that we were going to take a picture of Wells in an orange jumpsuit, slap it up on Kickstarter <laughs> with a big headline that said, send this man to Guantanamo. Um, and <laughs> this idea of, believe it or not, got kind of far along before we decided it would may not be in bad taste. Um, or it might be in bad taste. Sorry, it's before we decided that it was in, in, in sufficiently bad taste that we probably shouldn't do it, we did manage to say it, send Wells to Guantanamo in the form of Fort Meade, uh, simulcasts of the, uh, of the uh, Guantanamo military commissions, as far as I know, to this day, he has never worn an orange jumpsuit. Halloween is just around the corner. It is. I'm going to see him on the block. Well, maybe. I don't know. Let's yeah, because you and Wells live on the same block. That's true. But will I ever see him again? I don't know. <laughs> he is, uh, we're saying our fond farewells. Fond farewells. Thank you for being here, Wells. We'll miss you. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our other show pages. At SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Can I just break in here for a minute and say that all of our non-sponsors at this point deserve a word of shame. Oh, you totally. Raytheon, you <laughs> suck. You will not find Raytheon at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. No, you're not, not going to find... Not, you will not find Harry's razors. Harry's razors. None of us use them. Quinta, do you shave with Harry's razors? Never. Not. I shave with a Harry's razor. You do? I've said this Stop. You have to stop, yeah. No, it's a good razor. No, hey, you're... You're not going to admit on the radio Look, that you... You sponsor me. I'll tell you it's the best razor there's ever been. Right, okay. Since 1743, when my great-grandfather <laughs> Didymus Kinney <laughs> shaved his beard before joining the Continental Army. Can I also point out that, you know, Casper Mattresses has that... Use them for 100 days and then send them back. I totally want to do that. Well, can I... You know, because they're not our sponsor, I'm telling you... Order a Casper mattress. Yes. Use it for 99 days and then send the damn thing home. Back. Full of Harry's razor bits. Right. You know, shave with your fake Harry, with your non-Harry's yeah. razor, and add the beard trimmings to the beard Casper mattress. mattress. Send them back. Spray paint I hate Raytheon on the mattress. Right. And then demand your money back. Right. That's, and then give it to us. I think next week we're going to... Who are we gonna, which of our non-sponsors are we going to take on next week? I don't know. MailChimp? Like, the lucky one. A MailChimp, right? MailChimp. Oh. MailChimp. Yeah, we're going to go after MailChimp next week. MailChimp. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to start using MailChimp this week, too. Oh, don't we use, it. It, on, we use it on Lawfare. But we're going to talk about all the problems we've had with it. Um, <laughs> this is a nice counterintuitive strategy we have for making money to support this podcast. I like it. Uh, if you want to follow us and our non-sponsors, uh, you can find us on Twitter at RATL Security. 
Uh, of course, you can download the podcast at iTunes or anywhere else except any place with MailChimp or Harry's Razors. Or Raytheon. Don't download it from Raytheon. And if you do download it from someplace else other than that, please remember to leave a, ra- a rating and a comment. We appreciate it. Uh, the podcast is edited by Jen Powell. And our music was performed this week by Wells Bennett and the Undisclosed Locations. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> that's a good band name, right? That is a good Wells band name. Wells was in a band, too. Yeah, he was in a punk band. Wells is an ex-punker. Uh, and he's, no, not going off to, like, join the circus. Not literally, but a punk band. <laughs> that we know of. Uh, but, of course, our music was performed, as always, by the lovely Sophia Yam. Thank you to her. So, that's <laughs> not by and not by Harry's Razors. Thank you very much. On behalf of my friends Ben Buenas and Quentin Tresic, we will see you next week. Bye-bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.